This is a strange journey. Where we're headed is not yet clear. For the community to carry on, change is the new normal and being adaptive is the only strategy that works. Those words, true today, could have been written about the communities described in the Acts of the Apostles, which tells the story of a people of faith struggling to keep up with the Holy Spirit in rapidly changing and unsettled times. This fall, we pastors of Second Presbyterian Church are offering a sermon series on Acts called Catching Up with the Spirit. We invite you to join us during this season of change as we seek guidance from the text to follow God's lead, trusting God continues to work in, through, and alongside God's people to bring healing and wholeness to everyone. Join us as we seek to catch up with the Spirit. Let us pray. Holy God, make us attentive to your Spirit, whose journey we have traced through Acts. Join that Spirit's voice to the voice of Scripture, that we may hear something true and helpful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The movie, The Shawshank Redemption, lives in my television set. I mean, I flip through the channels, I find it all the time, and unless I'm in a hurry to find the Carolina basketball game, I almost always stop and watch for a bit. I mean, having seen the whole movie, I find nearly every scene worth watching. It might be the scene where the inmate, Andy Dufresne, explains to the corrupt prison guard how he can help save that guard money on his tax return while the guard is holding him by his ankles off the roof of a building ready to drop him to his death. Or it might be when Andy, knowing that he will be punished, sneaks into an office and plays over the speaker loudspeaker system a recording of the marriage of Figaro reminding all the inmates that there still is beauty in this world. Or maybe it's when the warden realizes that Andy not only has escaped, but has sent evidence of the warden's crimes to the local paper, and that when he looks out his office window and sees officers coming into the prison, he knows that they are coming to arrest him. Now, with the caveat that some scenes are brutal, it is a prison movie, This is a movie in which you can drop in and out of because each scene has its own fascination. The book of Acts is like that. With our sermon series, Keeping Up with the Spirit, I would say that we have not so much covered the book of Acts as sampled it. We have dropped in on this story and then on that story, and we've been rewarded with that stories, that scenes, Ability to fascinate. But it does help to have read the whole book. That's especially true this morning because our passage is the book's conclusion and the conclusion of Paul's story. Paul's story is the whole second half of Acts. The one who was introduced to us as a persecutor of Christians is now a Christian who is persecuted. He is under house arrest in Rome. And let's remember what he's been through. His first, hunting down Jesus followers, only then to become a Jesus follower. His years of study and growth in the faith. His partnering with Barnabas for missionary journeys and then their falling out. 
the history-changing agreement that he helped work out at the Jerusalem Council, his sermons and his debates in synagogues and on the streets, and the times he was spent shipwrecked or arrested or stoned, his run-ins with Jews, merchants, Romans, and even a snake on the island of Malta. He has lived life. And for what? No less than to win the entire world to Christ. No less than that. He has preached, taught, and yes, debated with Jews in the synagogues and Gentiles on the streets so as to share the good news of God's reconciling love for the entire world that no one, regardless of race or gender or social status, is beyond God's reach. Now, he wants Jews to remain Jews. He wants Gentiles to remain Gentiles. But he wants the whole world to know that we can live in harmony if we will find our unity and the love and grace that God has shown us in Jesus. And then we can be kind to each other. We can be moral and compassionate and just. Does it come as a surprise to you to know that Paul failed? Oh, certainly we can laud his achievements. He convinced Jesus' disciples to accept Gentiles as brothers and sisters in Christ, even without their first becoming Jews. And over his four missionary journeys around the entire Roman Empire, he has established house church after house church in town and in city. But while many have come to hear and believe, many more have not. And many of them have become hostile. And this is the worst part. Within the churches that he established, there are those worldly tensions and conflicts among the believers, between Jews and Gentiles, again, between those who have money and those who do not, and between the super spiritual, the spiritually woke of his day, and those that they look down upon. And just to put the finishing touches on what I am saying, Paul, who is a devout Jew with a mission to Gentiles, is under house arrest because both Jewish and Roman leaders conspired to constrain him. The leaders of the two communities that he wants to bring together in Christ, the leaders of those communities have him under arrest. But he's not going to give up. Even under arrest, Paul will not give up. And he's famous. Jews from near and Jews from far come to hear him and to debate him. And Paul gives his witness with that same strong passion and even some frustration. Listen, and listen for the word of God. After they, the Jews, had set a day to meet with Paul, they came to him at his lodgings in great numbers. From morning until evening, he explained the matter to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he had to say, while others refused to believe. So they disagreed with each other. And as they were leaving, Paul made one further statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, go to his people and say, you will indeed listen, but never understand. You will indeed look, but never perceive. 
For his people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes so that they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can I get by with another movie reference? About Schmidt is supposed to be a comedy, and I guess it is. There are a lot of funny moments. But that movie is also very sad. The movie begins with the retirement of Warren Schmidt, who has spent his entire career working as an actuary for an Omaha company called Woodman Insurance. And at his retirement dinner, his replacement talks about how hard it is for him that it's going to be for him to fill Warren's big shoes. And he says, Warren, I'm going, to, I'm going to have to call you back from time to time to get your help with old clients. And Warren is inspired by those words. He's moved by them. And the very next day, he goes back to the office to help out with the transition. And he's not only brushed off by his replacement, but finds that all the files that he had carefully put together to help the person taking his place have been thrown into a dumpster. Warren spends the rest of the movie on a road trip, hoping to find that he still matters to the family that he neglected all those years. The text for that movie could be a Thomas Merton quote. We may spend our whole life climbing the ladder of success only to find when we get to the top that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Richard Rohr drew on that quote in his book, Falling Upward, a Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. Rohr agrees with Merton, but he also wants to cut some slack for those who begin their lives trying to prove themselves in the world. I mean, don't we all have to start out that way? Isn't that necessary? I mean, how else are we going to find out who we are? How else are we going to find the early energy to do something significant and real and important in our lives, something real? I mean, how else are we going to succeed at anything or fail and learn by failing? We have to climb that ladder, even though it is a project doomed to fail. Well, maybe that's not the best way to say it. Roar wouldn't say doomed to fail, but rather doomed to fall. Because we are mortal, and it's inevitable that we will fall short of our very best aspirations. And the question is not whether we fall, but instead if our inevitable fall is going to break us or make us. I mean, if we end up disillusioned or feeling that we've been cheated in life, that some 
bargain has been broken with the world or with God or, or that God has let us down because the world has let us down or those that we have trusted have let us down or because we have let ourselves down, if we end up because of any of this cynical and mean, the fall has broken us. But the fall can make us, Rohr says, when we fall into God's grace, when we realize that all we have at the end to save us is God's grace, then we can reach that time when we actually can live authentically, regardless of whether we achieve or fail. The gospel of grace is what Paul has been preaching his entire life his entire adult life since his conversion on the road to Damascus. And he never gives up on that fight to convince others, to share that grace with others. And sometimes, despite what he believes about grace in his efforts, his failed efforts to share it, he can get carried away. I mean, I think we can see that in our passage, don't you think? I mean, Paul knows that his time is short, I mean, even if he lives until he dies by a natural death, he knows that more years are behind him than are before him. And he suspects what church tradition later tells us is true, that he might not make it alive out of that house arrest. Later, during Emperor Nero's attempt to wipe out the Christian movement, tradition tells us that Paul is beheaded. I think of Paul sitting there in that cell. I think of him looking back over his life, and I know that he knows that he's won many converts, but he has also won more opponents. He is famous, though, and his admirers and his opponents still come to visit him. And here Jews come from all over the world to see him. And in their conversations, we see that Paul is not giving up not even sitting under house arrest, because he knows the Torah and the prophets better than most of those who come, and he so wants them to understand that he's not not giving up or denying any of it. He wants them to know that Jesus is the embodiment of the love that is behind the law of Moses. He's the embodiment of the justice that the prophets demand. And as with his whole life, In his conversation, trying to convince others of that, he wins some and loses more. Some believe, more don't, and they start arguing with each other, and Paul loses his temper. He does what we've seen so many people do, what I suspect that we have all done at one time or another. Paul yells at the backs of those he disagrees with as they leave his house, and he throws scripture at them. Isaiah was right about you. Isaiah said, some will listen and not hear, some will look and not perceive, and it'll be because their hearts are dull, their ears are deaf, their eyes are shut. Well, the Gentiles are listening, and that's why the Holy Spirit is moving away from Jews to Gentiles. Now, I'll grant that the book of Acts, that the theologian who wrote the book of Acts, is probably wrapping things up by explaining why the gospel moves with more ease among Gentiles than among Jews. But still, I don't think that's Paul's best moment. 
Remember first that some of the Jews who visit him do believe and accept what Paul is telling them, so obviously the Spirit is moving among the Jews. Remember second that Paul is under house arrest because Roman rulers had him arrested. His message runs against Gentile walls as well as Jewish ones. Remember third that Paul's whole message is about God's grace and he's not about to abandon that message at the end. And that message is that in the grace of God and Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And finally, remember the last two verses of our passage in the book of Acts. The two verses that are about the next two years, probably the last two years of Paul's life. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who had come to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, without hindrance from being confined, without hindrance from within himself. Though Paul is confined under arrest, he welcomes all, preaching and teaching boldly and freely. I see a change in Paul after the visit and before these last two verses. I see a picture of one who has come to fully accept his circumstances and has peace with it. He welcomes his guest, he shares his joy, and Paul knows that some will receive and some will reject, and that he probably will never be free of arrest again, but Paul doesn't give up because he doesn't have to win. He has only to offer a witness to the grace that has won him, the grace that might, just might win others still. When this pandemic first hit this past February, I was teaching a class on James Davidson Hunter's book, To Change the World. And we had to shut the class down after two sessions, and it was a huge disappointment for me because I was never able to get to the overall point that Hunter was making with his book, a point that I thought was very important as we then faced an election in a highly divided and polarized world. Because I saw so many putting their hope and their happiness in the, in the hands of one agenda or another. This book, you see, is about the ways that American Christians have tried to win over America. I won't go into detail, but he talked about how conservatives have tried to take over the reins of power and the culture so the church can have complete freedom to convert souls, and have failed. He talked about how liberals have tried to cooperate with the reins of power and the culture to enforce a social agenda of equity and justice, and failed. And he talked about those who have tried to just stay out of it, and have failed at that, because it's impossible to live apart from what's going on in the world, and really, it's irresponsible to try. And then he got to his point. Of course we fail. Our gospel is not about worldly success, but it's about the power of the cross to save sinners. And we get lost in our own righteous causes and we begin to think that the only acceptable outcome is to bend the world to our will. 
but we will fall short. And one reason we will fail is that moral failure is within us. We fall short even in the good that we do. The best that we can do, Hunter says, is to do what Paul did in his confinement, and that is simply continue to witness and strive for the justice and peace that we will never fully achieve. Now, that doesn't mean we give up. Oh, no, it does not mean we give up. We have to strive to be better as people, to do better in this world, to better our world, to promote dignity, to fight against injustice and corruption, and promote the moral rule of law in personal and communal lives. We have to strive what's best for ourselves, for our loved ones, for our friends, for our community, for our world. But we do so because we're called to it, called to make a witness. So what if we witness to a grace that falls on deaf ears and dull hearts? It's still a grace that has claimed us and is our salvation and gives us joy. So why not still witness it, even if it seems to go nowhere? And when we fail, we only then prove that we have taken up the cross of defeat to witness to God's final victory of resurrection. Hunter closes his book by saying, Christians at their best will neither create a perfect world nor one that is altogether new. But by enacting shalom and seeking it on behalf of all others through the practice of faithful presence, it is possible, just possible, that they will help make the world just a little bit better. This Thursday, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. And it will be for many a Thanksgiving that's confined within the frustrations and stresses of a pandemic. Many will not be able to gather with all the loved ones who normally come together on that day. It's going to be like we're on house arrest. And we'll observe the day still stressed by all the world's news. But our passage asks us, why should that stop us from giving thanks? For even in the confinement of our humanity, we can give thanks for God's grace, the grace that claims us as we are and calls us to live and hope for a better, if not perfect, life and family, community, and world. When we don't have to win, it's amazing sometimes what can be won in our hearts, in some of those we know, and in parts of our world. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.